Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of First Chronicles in the 11th chapter, verses 15 through 19, and also in the book of Philippians, chapter 2, verses 17 through 18. I will be reading from the New International Version. You can follow along in your Bibles, or I invite you to look to the screens. Three of the 30 chiefs came down to David to the rock of the cave of Adullam, while a band of Philistine was a, Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim. At that time, David was a stronghold, and the Philistine garrison was at Bethlehem. David longed for water and said, Oh, that someone would get me a drink of water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem. So the three broke from the Philistine line, drew water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem, and carried it back to David. But he refused to drink it. Instead, he poured it out to the Lord. God forbid that I should do this, he said. Should I drink the blood of these men who went at the risk of their lives? Because, their lives, because they risked their lives to bring it back, David would not drink it. Such were the exploits of the three mighty warriors. From the book of Philippians. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you, so that you too should be glad and rejoice with me. The word of the Lord. Well, I'll start with this, Julie. Okay, I'm a Detroit Lions fan. So I come in peace. I am not a threat to anyone or any system or any division in, in football, especially professional football. So no worries, folks. Detroit Lions have been irrelevant for as long as I've been alive. There, we'll start there. I, uh, I, and I do, I do not dislike the Seahawks. I like the Seahawks. I'm not a 49ers fan. Don't worry, even though, even though I'm from the Bay Area, kind of. I'm actually from Los Angeles. I'm not a Rams fan either. So I've, I've stayed true with the Lions. So I'm good, okay? And things make change. God is, God is amazing, so he might change my heart. You never know. Um, gosh, oh, you look at it. You look at a story like this out of Chronicles, and you think, why in the heck would you choose a story out of Chronicles for a candidating sermon? I mean, what a weird story, especially the way the story ends, if you look at it. Such were the exploits of the three mighty men. you like, is that how you end a story? And then you get over to Paul, and, and Paul talks about his life being poured out like a drink offering. Like, what is, what is Paul referring to? Could Paul be pulling from something deeper? Because Paul is, is writing from prison, so he doesn't know the outcome of his life, whether he's going to live or die. If you're in a Roman prison, that's generally not a good thing. So Paul keeps traveling through the Roman Empire and keeps insisting that Jesus is Lord. And if you say that Jesus is Lord in a system that declares Caesar is Lord, things are not going to go well for you or your family. But he refuses to stop saying Jesus is Lord. And I would say the reason why Paul is continuing to live in this pattern is because Paul has taken on what we could call the yes position to life. There are two positions that we can take to life, the yes position and the no position. And the yes position is that 
I'm all in in the way of Jesus. I'm open. I'm curious. I want to be a person who is full of wonder and curiosity. And whatever Jesus calls me into, I will say yes to that, even if it means losing. Even the hard parts of life, I will say yes. And then the no position is there's conditions attached to how far we can go in the way of Jesus. So it might mean that I'm all in as long as these things aren't asked of me or required of me. But Paul has taken on this posture of a yesness, an openness to the way of Jesus. And this got me thinking. I've been a pastor for 25 years now. And I have sat with lots of different people over the years, and I've heard some of the hardest, gut-wrenching stories of things that people have been through. I've seen the best of humanity and the worst of humanity. And as I sit and I listen to people talk about their dreams, their hopes, their desires, this is what I hear so often and keeps coming up consistently in the narratives of people's hearts and lives, that I put my heart and soul into this person. I sunk everything that I had into this dream, into this hope, into this vision. I poured myself out quite literally, and it didn't lead to rejoicing for me. It didn't lead to a greater sense and a deeper joy. Or I hear this quite often. I did all the right stuff. I studied the scriptures. I prayed. I was diligent. I was faithful to God and to my spouse. I was dedicated to my kids and to my church. And guess what? It didn't work out. My spouse still left me for someone else. That kid that I poured myself into for 20 years of my life won't talk to me any longer. There's all these things that I've poured myself into, and yet these things keep happening in the story. I've known people who, who, were, who would say I was absolutely convinced that they were supposed to start a business. This was what was the desire of their heart. It was the right thing to do. And they invested their savings, their dream, and then five years later it all tanked or that business partner ran off with all the money. I kid you not. And you hear these stories over and over again. Or how about this one? I put my heart and soul into this education. I did all the work. And then you meet young people who aren't even doing the thing that they studied. All this time and effort and money that they poured into this dream, and yet they're not doing the thing that their education provided for them. I, I meet person after person whose dreams and hearts have been dashed to the rock so many times. And the plaguing question that I keep hearing coming up over and over again is this, did I waste my time? Was it all for nothing? I thought, I really, really, truly thought that God wanted me to do this. Did I waste all my time and my energy and my resources and money? Did I, did I hear right on this one? I mean, after all the hard work and the sacrifice, I have nothing left to show for it. Now, do you ever feel that way? Do you feel like sometimes you have those questions going on inside of you of like, did I, did I get this one right? Am I wasting my time, all this stuff that I poured out? Am, am I hearing right on this one? And I suspect that if we were to go around and talk to each one of you in the room, you probably could identify with this to a degree because I, I think it's safe to assume that your story is probably similar to my story in some ways. Because you put all this energy and this time and this devotion into this thing and it doesn't work out quite the way that you had hoped it would work out. And yet we keep going. And the question that keeps coming back to my heart and my mind is, did I get it right? Did I waste my time? Did I hear right on this one? Now in this story, 
out of Chronicles. This, it's this strange story about David and the Philistines. And David um, experiences this thirst in the story. And then the three mighty men do this strange thing. And then David's response to them is really bizarre. Now, what's going on in the story? Well, David and his army are held up in a cave about 10 to 15 miles outside of Bethlehem, and their enemy, the Philistines, have developed a fortress against them. They have a stronghold at the gate of Bethlehem. And what strikes me about the story is verse 17. Look at verse 17 with me. It says that David longed for water and said, Oh, that someone would get me a drink of water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem. Now, David is thirsty. And the question I asked the text is, David's thirsty, but what is he thirsty for? Because I, I imagine that David and his army had access to water as they were in the stronghold. And yet David wants water from Bethlehem. So his thirst has to be more than just a physical need for water. There has to be something else going on in the text. Now, there's a, a desire inside of me to go back to a simpler time in life, right? At the age of 52, I think, man, what I wouldn't give to kind of go back to a simpler time in life when bills didn't mean what bills mean today. You know what I'm talking about? It's like when you, when you paid rent, you could cover rent, and now rent has turned into mortgage. And that stuff is a lot weightier. I remember when I had a, a car payment for a Chevrolet Chevette. Do you remember this car, the Chevy Chevette? Some of you are like, never heard of it. That's, there's a reason for that. The Chevy Chevette wasn't their best production model. But I remember having the Chevy Chevette, and the Chevy Chevette was, that cost me $75 a month, and it cost me about $7 to fill up the gas tank. That's the nut I had to cover. That's it. And then, on top of that, I just had to come up with $5 a week to hit Taco Bell for a dinner out. And that was, like, that's all I had to cover. But now, if you remember um, those kinds of things, it's like bills pile up and things are a lot different as you age and all the pressures of life start to pack up on side of you. And you think, man, I wish I could just go back to a simpler time in life when doing taxes didn't mean doing taxes at 52, but it was a lot easier to file taxes when I was 21. It took me all of five minutes to file my taxes. And now it's like there's stress and it takes days to file taxes or we need professionals. And here's David. Oh my gosh, how I wish I could go back. And David's mighty men, the three mighty men, overhear David's desire. And because they're loyal to their leader, they head out from the cave to get water from a well all the way over in Bethlehem. Now, scholars estimate that the journey that these three mighty men took was probably around 10 to 15 miles to Bethlehem. And so we could safely assume that the journey round trip was 25 miles on foot. So the three mighty men head out on this excursion, break through the Philistine garrison, and then they actually make it back to David because the story tells us that they made it back. So imagine that. They break through this defensive line, they get water, and then they come all the way back to David. And what does David do with their sacrifice? It says in the text, he refused to drink it. And you're like, what? He refused to drink it. Instead, he poured it out to the Lord. God forbid that I should do this, he said. Should I drink the blood of these men who went at the risk of their lives because they risked their lives to bring it back? David would not drink it. Now, 
you read a story like this and you're like, that's weird. What is going on in the text? Why, why would David pour it out, refuse to drink it after this immense sacrifice? And here's the key, I think, in the text. In verse 18, it says, he refused to drink it. Instead, he poured it out to the Lord. Now, it's important to keep in mind when you see Lord and it's capital L, it comes from four Hebrew letters, yod Hey vah Hey, And it was a particular way of understanding the nature and the character of God. yod Hey vah Hey is translated as Yahweh. And Yahweh means the God who saves, the God who liberates. But it was also an understanding that this is a God who's active and present in the world. So this shapes and informs how they see Yahweh. Because they think about God in a particular way, it shapes how people act and do sacrificial acts. So he's treating their sacrifice as a holy and sacred act because you think about how much it actually cost these men to do the thing that they did. The cost was very high. It was their very lives. And boy, pouring it out, what David was saying is there's no way that I deserve this kind of sacrifice. Only Yahweh deserves this kind of sacrifice. It's the sacrifice that actually makes it sacred. Now think about that. David sees their act in a completely different way. And what amazes me about what Paul is pulling from in the biblical narrative, he says that my very life is being poured out like a drink offering. Paul sees life as a precious gift. Feels like every day when I wake up and I get another shot at life, it's a precious gift. Paul's has this yes position. And when he gets poured out, emptied out, he sees his very life being poured out as an act unto the Lord, Yahweh, the God who's active in the world, the God who liberates and saves. He says that my life is being poured out like a drink offering. It's actually a sacred thing. That's a game changer right there. That changes how we see life. That changes how I see my life, how I see my situation right now, how I see my job, my career, my family, the dynamics that God has placed in front of me. Because when you pour yourself out and you give yourself to somebody or something, you are pouring yourself out quite literally. And when you throw your craft into the world and you take risks and you put your words and your creativity and you toss it out in the world, you're throwing yourself out there and making yourself vulnerable and you are being poured out. Paul looks right in the eye of suffering, pain, loss, and instead of seeing it as a waste, he says, my life is being poured out like a drink offering. And this causes Paul to say, I rejoice in that. And then he invites the community of faith, and I want you to rejoice with me as our lives are being poured out for the sake of Yahweh, for the sake of others, and for the flourishing of the community. And this causes Paul to rejoice. It's kind of this, this deep, resonant joy, this buoyant joy that always seems to rise to the surface no matter what the circumstances are because our lives aren't rooted in something that's shifting and moving, but our lives are rooted in a foundational truth that God has us in all things. So he's rooted in something deeper than circumstances, rooted in something deeper that that which shifts and moves. He's rooted in a deeper reality. And because Paul has chosen to take a yes position to life, he's saying, I'm all in no matter what. And I'm choosing 
to rejoice. And I'm asking you, fellow followers of Jesus, to rejoice with me because our lives are being poured out like a drink offering. Now, this raises lots of questions. When you look at a story like this and you look at Paul writing from prison because you think about all that money that you lost. You think about 20 years of marriage and all of that is gone now. And you think about your career and all that you've poured into that particular career. You did all the right things. Or you think of that kid of yours that you poured yourself into and now that that child has moved away or they don't want anything to do with you. It's all too heavy, isn't it? It's too much to bear. It feels really weighty. It's like, what about all those hours that I poured into that person, into that project, into those people? I spent countless hours, energy, and there was no payoff at the end. What about all of that? And if you're breathing and you're a human, you know what I'm talking about. You've had these similar experiences where those certain outcomes that you had hoped for didn't quite happen the way that you had wished. And what about all those bits and pieces of you that you poured out and you gave that person the best part of you and they still stabbed you in the back? What do you do with all of that? And I think that's what the text is asking of us. And I think the proper posture to take on as a Jesus follower is to say, I simply offer it up. I offer up my life, my heart. I open myself up to the world and I say yes to the way of Jesus. If you've been part of a good AA meeting at any point in your life, when you enter into the process, what is the first step that you have to admit about yourself? You're powerless to do anything, right? You admit your weakness. You own up to it. What you are essentially saying is, I I offer myself up. I can't carry this around anymore by myself. And so I'm admitting the fact that I need help. And this is why recovery always begins with owning up to the reality that you can't do it on your own. So you need help from other people. There's great power in acknowledging the fact that you are not the center of the universe at all. Surrender is a wonderful thing because surrender always opens up the way to more possibilities because it frees you from having to play God. And quite frankly, we are lousy at playing God. And it frees you from that. This prayer, I offer myself up, has become one of the most sacred, simple prayers of my life. To step into each day with a yes position to life and to say, Jesus, today, I offer myself up. I throw out my craft in the world. I throw out my heart. Here I am. This is John Woolner. Whether you like it or not, okay, this is me. And I offer myself up and I say yes to the way of Jesus. And all of those hours and that money and that broken heart and what seemed like a waste of time, listen, I can't carry it around anymore, so I simply offer myself up. And when I offer myself up, what I am acknowledging is that I can't control how people are going to respond. They might love me, they might hate me, they might shrug their shoulders in indifference. I may not get the results I want, or maybe I will, but my life is being poured out like a drink offering, and that is a sacred and beautiful thing. It's a game changer. Changes how we see our lives. Changes how we see certain outcomes. Part of spiritual maturity, and we talk a lot about spiritual maturity 
in the Christian life is when you come to realize that you can't control certain outcomes. That's spiritual maturity. And there's three outcomes that I've learned over life that you can't control. You ready for this? People, places, and things. You can't control any one of those three things. You say a prayer, you offer it up, and by doing so, you are acknowledging the holy and the sacred act that it is because you gave that person the best that you had. And in the moment, you thought, this is the best that I can do. You spent that money, you spent your time, you thought, this is the right thing to do. It is not a waste, people. It's not a waste. You're poured out, but not wasted. It's the sacrifice that makes it holy and sacred. And that's the beauty of following Jesus. The sacrifice is what makes it sacred, that makes you realize that life is a gift. And you think about, about that kid, that one kid that you gave everything before, because as a parent, you realize that as soon as God gives you a child, your heart no longer belongs to you. Isn't that right, parents? It's like you get a kid and you, and you see this little child come into the world and they're like, can I have your heart now? And you're like, yeah, you can have it. Boom, it just pops out of your chest. And then you get another one and you realize, oh my gosh, I didn't realize I, could, I had more to give. And then that gets ripped out of your chest and you give everything to that child. You gave them the best that you had over and over again. But then I hear stories about what about that kid who no longer wants to be in your life and you put all that energy into them. And as a parent, what I can simply say is this, I offer her up. I offer him up. I offer them up and I surrender the outcome because the more we try to control and cling and clutch, the more we end up pushing them away. The very thing that we want, we end up losing. And one of the most difficult things as a parent is to see that our kids seem to have their own will. Have you noticed this? Their own desires. They want to live their own lives. And we are invited to offer them up. All of those faithful years of parenting, all of those faithful years of being in relationships, all of those faithful years, even in terms of friendships and coworkers and all the things that we've poured ourselves into. And when those outcomes don't happen the way that we had hoped that they would happen, what the scripture invites us to is to open up, offer it up, realizing that all that sacrifice was not a waste of time, but it was actually a sacred and a holy act. My life, your life, is being poured out like a drink offering. Offer it up to Yahweh, the God who is active, the God who liberates, the God who saves, realizing that the sacrifice is a holy and sacred act. Jared and Linnea, are you in the building? They're here. Just come up and get ready. And what I'd like to do um, with you all as they get ready to lead us in a song is I wanna do a spiritual practice with you. And I think it's really important for faith communities to do spiritual practices together because it roots us and establishes us in what is real. So I wanna teach you this Quaker prayer that I learned years ago. 
And the Quaker prayer is called the palms down, palms up prayer. Maybe some of you know this practice, but I'm going to invite you just to hold your hands out like this, with your palms down. And to take a moment, center yourselves, quiet yourselves. And this posture is called the posture of release. And there might be something that you've been carrying around too long, trying to control it, demanding a certain outcome, pouring yourself into it, and you're realizing, I can't control the outcome. So with our palms down, we release it. We release it into the hands of Jesus. And we say, Jesus, have your way. Come, Lord Jesus. I surrender. I surrender. I won't cling to this. I won't hold on to this, but I surrender myself to the way of Jesus. And now, take your hands and open up your palm, both hands. This is the the posture of receiving. This is the posture of openness. This is the yes position to life. And we say, Holy Spirit, Give us what we need right now in this moment. As we learn the sacred act of surrender and we learn the sacred act of not trying to cling on to things and control things, we open ourselves up to the way of Jesus. And we're choosing to trust and we're choosing to rejoice and we're choosing the way of Christ in the world. We acknowledge that life is a gift, even the hard parts. And this morning, we choose to say yes to you, Jesus. Yes to you, Holy Spirit. Lead us now. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.